All right, well, thank you for coming, and I mean it, because you never know on this Sunday when everyone's at Yosemite who will be here, how many, but hey, if there's even one person, happy to, happy to speak from God's word. So, uh, hey, thank you, Andrew, for leading the singing for us. Um, I have a couple guests. I just want to point out uh, good friends Bob and Diana Speakman are here, and uh, are also uh, uh, Charles and his daughters, uh, Charles Kurtek and his daughter Sophia and Cameron. So, thank you for being here as well. Um, I hope everybody had a good Fourth of July. We just celebrated that earlier this week, and um, you know it's easy to get caught up in the fireworks and the hubbub and the you know having sparklers on the patio and everything like that. And uh, to forget about you know, what 4th of July is about, and even Memorial Day too, that there were people who shed their blood for our freedom, who, who laid down their life and died so that we can have this country, which um, it, it still there's no reluctance for anybody being able to come and, and speak the word. We can have Bibles in this country. What a privilege that is. Um, but in speaking of, of the blood sacrifice that we've, we've celebrated, you know, we, we remember that by the shedding of their blood. And tonight, I, I'd like to talk about that long, unbroken story of the blood sacrifice that goes cover to cover in the Bible uh, that eventually led to what Christ did for us. And this amazing story or, or theme or thread that goes all the way through the Bible is commonly called the scarlet thread of redemption. Um, in the original Bible that I had, I had used for a good 20 years, I mean, I still have it, there's a neat little piece, an essay at the end of it called The Scarlet Thread of Redemption. And uh, I'd read it years ago, and then I read it recently, and, um, and it struck me that that, that that is a really neat topic. But short of trying to summarize the whole Bible, I had to kind of pick and choose how I hid it um, and, and um, bring it out. And so I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point to a couple characters in God's Word that were redeemed people who you, you didn't think would even deserve it or would go for it um, or ask for redemption um, through, through the Lord's uh, forgiveness, but they did nonetheless. Um, if I had to define the scarlet thread of redemption, it would, it would be the way that God has consistently forgiven and redeemed the repentant sinner's heart. And he's been doing that um, from Adam and Eve and is and it's still going on as we know. If there's a key verse that, and I will eventually get to this as well again, but in, in Hebrews 9, verse 22, that is kind of the basis for all this. It says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Right? Without shedding of blood, no remission of sins. But let's open with a word of prayer before we go into God's word. Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for being able to be here tonight to open your word. We, we have it in print. It is easy to access. We can read it, and we have commentaries, and, and you can bring it forth. I thank you for the privilege of bringing it forth here tonight. We do think of those that are in Yosemite and pray for their safety and pray for the, the conference and the speakers going on there. We just thank you, God, for the opportunity, Lord, to, to learn further about your redemptive work, how your hand has been in it from day one that your, your forgiveness uh, is, has always been something that you have wanted to give us, um, more so than allowing us to be trapped in our sin. We just thank you for this night, Lord. All in the power of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, the story of, story of redemption is one that, that goes back to the Garden of Eden, and we can read that in Scripture, of course. Um, the first time that we see a blood sacrifice is when God provides the skins for Adam and Eve uh, after they have tried to atone for their own sins by sewing fig leaves for themselves together for coverings when they've become ashamed of their sin, of eating of the fruit. Um, but, and that, that's where the scarlet thread of redemption really begins, but the actual name scarlet cord is for, or scarlet thread is, is first seen kind of tangibly, tangibly and, symbol, and symbolically in Scripture with the story of Rahab the harlot. Uh, so if you would turn to Joshua 2, and we'll, uh, we'll look at this now. 
I got to tell you, you know, I was praying about what, what to speak about. And just the other day, we had spent the night at some relative's house, uh, still praying about uh, speaking on the threat of redemption. And this, uh, I guess he's kind of my, he's one of my, my nephews, was playing with this, this red thread. And he was, uh, I had my shoes off and he was kind of tying my feet together with it. And lo and behold, the little boy's name is Joshua as well. And he was playing with this red thread. And I just thought, okay, I, Lord, I feel the confirmation right there. Thank you for showing me that. I just couldn't believe it. it was interesting. Um, so this is about Rahab hiding the spies. So starting in Joshua chapter 2, now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. All right, there's a war and a conquest going on. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab. Notice how her reputation precedes her name as it's written there. So they went, they, they came to the house, and they lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king has gotten wind of this and is suspicious. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house. He automatically goes straight to Rahab. For they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman, Rahab, took the two men and hid them. Immediately she's able to do this, apparently. So she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know, but pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. All right? She does not tell the truth. And it says here in verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. Perhaps she had a hunch that that was coming, but she did indeed do that. Um, I want to read a commentary uh, that I have right here in my Bible, the Jeremiah Study Bible, uh, entitled, Why Did God Honor Rahab's Lie? Was this okay? And a, I, I think it brings, it brings it to light pretty well. Many people struggle with the fact that Rahab lied because both the Old and New Testaments affirm that lying is a sin. It is notable, however, that when Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews 11, her lying is not mentioned. That is not because her lying was overlooked, but because it was forgiven. Rahab is never honored for her lie. She is always honored for her faith. Even though Rahab knew her life was in jeopardy and her country was doomed, as we can read in Joshua 2, she was honest with the spies. Rahab did not lie for her own protection. The truth would have actually been less dangerous. She put her life in greater jeopardy by hiding the two men and lying about their whereabouts. In addition, the Bible does not say where Rahab was in her faith journey at this point. While she had some knowledge of who God is, it is likely that she did not come to internalize that faith until later in life. Rahab should not be held accountable for her conduct in the same way as someone who had walked in the faith for many years and been raised under God's laws. From the biblical perspective, Rahab's lie by no means condones lying. As we read the Bible, we must distinguish between what God condones and what he records. In this case, God records the lie because he is truth, not because he is commending Rahab's actions. Perhaps God would have saved the spies some other way. He could do that if she had told the truth. But Rahab did the best she could in that moment, and God commended her for the faith she showed. That's the thing to remember about Rahab. She's known for her faith. And in fact, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews 11, and as well, I'll read something in, in James, um, Rahab uh, is mentioned. Uh, again, not for her lives, but for her faith. Hebrews 11:31 says, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And in James chapter 2, 
in verse 24 and 25, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. This is when James is showing how works don't save us, but they justify our faith. And he's pointing that out for Rahab. In verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Well, I think the thing to remember about Rahab, she proved the reality of her faith by protecting the spies, even though it meant betraying her country. That's actually what she did. Um, in Joshua's conquest, uh, the men, those men came on behalf of Joshua, and she helped them, all right? Um, but she actually was honoring God by, by doing that. And as, so, as we'll read her, the men of Israel promised life and safety both for her and her father's house if she would bind a scarlet thread in her window. So let's continue here, and still in uh, Joshua chapter 2, verse 14. So the men, these are the spies, so the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. And they're being very serious about this here. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. They're so serious, they, and they want something to symbolize their seriousness. And so they, listen to what they say. In verse 15, then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. It's apparently where she stayed. She was up on top of the wall. And she said to them, guys, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. She knew what she had to tell them to protect them further. Verse 17, so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of, of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window, which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, in other words, if you rat us out, and if you don't take this seriously, then we will be free from your oath, which you have made us swear. So she buys into it, she understands, and she says in verse 21, okay, then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed, and she bound the scarlet cord in the window. Now, the symbolism of it. This is the first time we see the, the tangible, physical scarlet cord mentioned in the Bible, but yet it symbolizes the scarlet thread that goes all the way through the Bible. The scarlet cord was utilized by Rahab, and it's a reminder of the blood that is associated with faith, trust, and sacrifice. Again, in verse 18, it was just read, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the, in, in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. Well, this, the scarlet cord makes us think of a house protected by the blood, as at the original Passover. We also see it there. So when Rahab hung that scarlet cord, it was a reminder of the Passover, and it also served, unbeknownst to Rahab at the time, to symbolize the continual blood sacrifice that God would use for the redemption of sins throughout history. You may already know that, that when Rahab is mentioned in Matthew 1, in the, within the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, she is listed as simply Rahab, not Rahab the harlot. I think that's interesting. This, as we see in the other places in Scripture, she is mentioned, it's either uh, the harlot Rahab or Rahab the harlot. But when she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus, she is simply Rahab. And I, I think that's interesting. Um, speaking of the bloodline of Christ, we see God's hand in forgiveness and in sacrifice and removal of guilt in, and in his ability to reconcile us to him. The genealogy of Christ is not a list of wonderful 
nearly perfect individuals. It is a list of redeemed sinners who did a lot of stuff that they are forgiven for. Uh, Not all of of them came to the Lord, but nevertheless, in the bloodline of Christ, there was a lot of forgiveness. And you might think that, you know, God would want that line to be completely pure. And he does so really doing that with with the thread of forgiveness all the way through it. Um, So so now I want to look at the story of another person who... uh, Boy, if it were up to me, I, would, I could never have given this person a second chance. But the evil king Manasseh, the wicked king of Judah, he is also an ancestor of our Lord Jesus and is listed as well in, in the genealogy of Jesus in, in Matthew 1. He lived after Rahab and after David, uh, both of whom are, are in this, the genealogy as well. But if you could turn to 2 Chronicles 33, and we'll look at uh, Manasseh's reign in Judah and uh, what he does through all that. So 2 Chronicles 33. So King Manasseh reigning in Judah, starting in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Picking up about halfway through verse 6, he practiced soothsaying. Just, just listen to how, how decrepit this, this king is uh, before he makes his change. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he, Manasseh himself, had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, And these are God's words here. In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. But as it continues, verse 9, So Manasseh seduced Judah. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Not a great reputation so far. And in 2 Kings, it even says, it says about Manasseh, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And in, back, back in 2 Chronicles now, 33, verse 10 and the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people. I find it amazing that he is even that the Lord is even doing that, still speaking to him after all this. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, right? No handcuffs here. Listen to what they're taking away with. Hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord as God. There's good news here, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him. And he, the Lord, received his entreaty. He was accepting what he said, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What a great story that is, the way way he turns around. Jumping ahead to verse 16, he also repaired, he's putting action to, to his faith right here, he also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. 
Right, so what did our long-suffering and patient and forgiving God look at ultimately in Manasseh's life? Did he look at his sin? Did he look at the idolatry? Did he look at all the murder? He looked at his heart. Ultimately, he looked at Manasseh's heart and he continued to give him chances to repent. God loves to look at and forgive a repentant heart a whole lot more than he wants to look at or remember our sin. Praise the Lord for that. Well, so why did I mention these two people, Rahab and Manasseh, in this line of scarlet uh, thread, in the, in the thread of redemption? I probably could have spoken about, you know, a dozen different uh, characters that, that realized faithfully that their sins could be forgiven and eventually come to the Lord. Um, David's another one. Uh, I spoke about him actually a few months ago, and he comes in between Rahab and King Manasseh. He's also in the lineage of Jesus, as I'm sure you well know. Um, we've talked about a woman, Rahab, whose profession defined her. You know, so she was always, always seems to be called Rahab the harlot in Scripture, as I'd mentioned. That's a reminder of who she was, but it was her faithful obedience to the Lord that is mentioned in the book of James. If you think about it, all right, Rahab sold her body as she tried to buy herself a living. She sold her body as she tried to buy herself a living, but Christ bought us with his body so that we might live. I love the contrast of that. He bought us with his body so that we might live. But it was Rahab's faithful, repentant heart that the Lord saw, all right? Not her lying, um, not the uh, concealing of the, with the, of the spies, not hiding the spies, her repentant heart, all right? And she is listed in the, in the genealogy of Jesus and in Hebrews and James as someone with great faith. King Manasseh was a mass murderer, but he turned his heart to the Lord ultimately and repented, right? And became a forgiven man in the Lord's eyes. Even after all the bloodshed, the idolatry, uh, the blasphemy that he'd been famous for, I, I, I think today a lot of folks probably have a hard time with that. You know, he, he was really a, kind of an ancient version of, of Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or, or even Saddam Hussein, to bring someone more recent. It, probably worse on a, on a lot of levels with what all he did. Um, but Manasseh was forgiven by God and still allowed to be written in the bloodline of Christ. Christ died for our evil nature as well as our evil deeds, but nevertheless, it, it is tough for some to accept that God's love is so great that he, he loves to forgive us far more than he wants the despicableness of our sin to keep us away from him. But we love him for it, and that's just the great thing about him. I think one reason that, that many folks have trouble accepting Christ's forgiveness is they, they find it difficult uh, to fathom, or perhaps they just haven't realized how much he loves us, how deep, how wide, how infinite his love is for us. They think there's some sort of finiteness to it, that they have sinned too much for him to be able to forgive them, but it's not. Uh, his love is so, so amazing, so incredible, there was not a sin that was not atoned for on the cross. The Lord loves us. Um, sin cannot be in God's presence, but that's not enough to overpower the love of Christ. Christ dealt with his father's intolerance of sin uh, through his love, um, shown by his blood sacrifice. Um, I, I think one way to grasp, anyway, and I, it, this takes a while to kind of grow into and understand as we, as we walk with the Lord over years, I think one way to grasp, though, how amazing and complete Christ's forgiveness is, is to realize that once we're in his presence in heaven, uh, we're not going to be looking at any harlots or mass murderers or adulterers or liars or robbers or, or gossips or betrayers or even sinners. We are redeemed. We are clean and purified. He forgives and forgets our sin. And through the blood of Christ, we appear holy to God the Father, all due to Christ's redemptive blood. Amen to that. So the Bible is full of, of stories of redeemed hearts and sacrificial bloodshed. And because of what we've already seen in Scripture about remission of sins through blood, 
uh, we're, we're able to know that Jesus, he didn't just show up unannounced. His sacrifice wasn't this sudden new thing that nobody had ever seen before. It, was, it had been written from the, from the dawn of history. The sacrifice made by his blood, though, was, was unique, and it was the final and complete blood sacrifice and the last one that needed to be made. Right? The spotless lamb of God was the Christ himself who gave his own body. So the scarlet thread of redemption it allows us to see how God has always been about forgiveness and love and redemption through blood sacrifice. A uh, quick little story. Michelle and I have some longtime friends uh, who th their oldest daughter has, has grown up with this, this food allergy to dairy such that she, she is so sensitive to it that if she even has just a speck of it that touches her, uh, certainly if it gets in her mouth, but even if it touches her skin, that she winds up in the ER and uh, it's, it's, she's just absolutely deathly allergic to it. And over the years, people would say to her parents or even to her, you know, quite unconvincingly, not even a little bit, can't you give her a little bit of dairy just to see if she'll kind of get used to it? Will she eventually grow into it? But they, they couldn't allow her, her daughter to even entertain the idea of, of having dairy at all, not even a speck. So you couldn't even allow her to be near it. Well, I think God is like that with sin. And his unchanging and holy nature, it, it just doesn't allow him to entertain questions about tolerating sin. You, you, you can't come before the Lord and say, how about just a little bit? I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. He's like, no, no sin. Holiness and sin don't mix. So, you know, speaking for myself, I don't, I don't want a hint of, of, let's say, sawdust or motor oil mixed into my ice cream. All right, I don't know about you. Um, I could probably tolerate that if I had to, but I don't want that. I don't want any of it in there. God cannot tolerate sin, and he is unchanging. Sin and holiness just do not mix. You can't have them together. The scarlet thread, it ultimately became the, the common historical link that we could eventually trace back to see how, regardless of how wretched anyone's sin was before God, we can trace it back to see uh, that he was willing to forgive that sin, but not without paying for it with the blood of one of his own created beings, the ultimate cost being that the sacrifice of his only son. So when you think of how infinitely loving God is combined with how absolutely holy, holy, holy he is, and that only he is holy, then we're able to begin to understand why Christ came to save us and that he was really the only one who could do that. And that's ultimately where the scarlet thread of redemption leads us. The redemptive stories of the Old Testament lead all the way to Christ. Uh, who paid the ultimate sacrifice. I think it's amazing, though, when you think about it, with the blood sacrifice that, that Christ gave us through his own body, it's amazing that, that God, all he asks of us is to simply trust that Christ really has forgiven us of our sins in the way that he did. That's it. He just asks us to agree and accept his son's forgiveness, to accept his son himself, and, and we are forgiven. At all that work done by him, we don't need to do any of it. It really is unfathomable, but that's all we're asked to do, and praise God for that. Um, to really gain an understanding of the enormity of what he did, however, I, I think it's, it's a lifelong pursuit. I think as we grow in Christ, we become more and more aware of our sin, and more and more aware of what he really did on the cross, how much he has redeemed us from, and what, we've, what we deserve. Uh, children um, accept Christ often when they are, let's say, four or five years old, and it's not that they don't under have an understanding that they're a sinner, but I think as they go through life and they see themselves and understand, oh, I continue to sin, um, that's, you gain a greater understanding and appreciation for what Christ did on the cross for us. So it is, as I say, a lifelong pursuit. 
Let's talk more about the blood, though. What is the importance of blood throughout history? I mean, Christ could have gone up there and just simply breathed a last breath and, and said, okay, I, I, I gave you my last breath, and that's it. But it's, it's blood that is constantly written into the history of the scarlet redemption, of the scarlet thread of redemption. What is so special about it that allows for it to be the common thread in the story of redemption? Hebrews 9.22, as I had said, without shedding of blood, there is no remission. I found a, a, a quote um, from the, the great speaker, you may have heard him on the radio, Adrian Rogers, and he, he kind of crystallized uh, some of this pretty well. I'd like to read from something that I got from him. Adrian Rogers says the, the following about the blood of Christ. You may not realize it, but everybody is coming into contact with the blood of Jesus. I said, everybody. You're going to walk out of this building under the blood or over the blood. Did you hear what I said? Either you will be under the blood or you're going to place the blood under you. When the Lord told the Jew, those Jews in the Passover, he said, put the blood upon the lintel and upon the doorposts. But there was no asking for blood to be put upon the threshold below. I love the symbology of that. It's around us, it's above us, but we don't, we don't go over the blood of Christ. Um, from my own perspective, I just want to share, uh, blood means life and blood supports life. All right, without, without blood, we do not have life, physical life, that is. And it has to be clean for us to live. Our blood needs to be clean. Blood is often referred to as the river of life. Blood contains white blood cells, which attack and cleanse and purify us from disease. Blood also contains red blood cells, which bring oxygen to our cells and allows the whole body to work together. Christ is the one thing in common to the body of Christ, and he opens the way for sinners to come to, to repentance and for the body of Christ to grow. He sanctifies the body with the purity of his truth, and he gives us new life and eternal life. Perhaps you caught that. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But our physical, our physical blood does a very similar thing. It, pro it provides the way for our bodies to grow and to be nourished. It circulates through the body and stays true and pure and clean by going through various organs that keep it clean. And then because it's being pumped through the heart, it brings us physical life. So it's kind of a neat connection there, I think, with the, the blood that's... Um, when you, when you think about that, that it was his own blood that was shed, he literally gave his physical life away to us through that. Christ was pierced and bled from all sides of his body. Actually, I prayed um, this, this idea um, uh, in the breaking of bread this morning, but I'd love to repeat it here again. He, he bled from seven different wounds in his body. First, it was his back that was plowed open by being scourged. Secondly, his head with the crown of thorns pushed on there. Thirdly, each of his hands. Fourthly, his feet, each of his feet, and finally his side. If you count them up, that's a perfect seven for the number of total wounds. And if you look at any angle at the, at the body of Christ, you could see blood coming from any side of his body that you, would, that you would view it from. So to see how perfect and complete that sacrificial blood of Christ is, I want to look at Hebrews 9. It really brings a lot of this together. I think I have time to go through this. And I have a, a uh, I'm going to try and tie everything together about the full scarlet thread of, of redemption um, with something at the end of this, but I want to go into Hebrews 9 here a little bit. Um, let's go in and start at verse 11. Hebrews 9, starting at verse 11, and it's going to we're going to be comparing the original sacrifices, you know, with the tabernacle and everything that was going on in the Old Testament with Christ Jesus being the, uh, the final sacrifice who paid the, paid the price for us. Starting in verse 11, but, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. 
He entered the most holy place once for all. Didn't have to do it multiple times. There was no going back every year for sacrifice. Once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, or a young cow that is, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, absolutely sinless, without spot to God, how much more will he clean your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, that's what Christ says. He cleans our conscience. We don't need to go through life with any kind of guilt over our sins. He has cleansed us and purified us. And if we remind him of sins, he says, what sin? That's, I have forgotten it. I've forgiven it and forgotten it. And, and even though we can remember our sins, um, we don't have to carry the guilt. We, and that's what a beautiful thing that is, to not have to go through life carrying the guilt of our sins. Yes, we remember them, but we are redeemed from them and don't have to go through life um, thinking about them or dwelling upon them. But it is amazing, too, how the Lord uses our past to continue to do his work. He uses the sins of ours to do renewals in our own life. Um, anyway, um, picking up in verse 15, and for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the, of the eternal inheritance. Nothing, no, nothing temporary about it. Now, now it is an eternal inheritance that we receive. Uh, Pick it up in verse 16. For there is a testament, there must, for, for, excuse me, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death, and again, that's, there's the bloodshed mentioned here, be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the, the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Going all the way back to uh, Adam and Eve, when the animal was slain in front of them, and the seriousness of the sin was shown to Adam and Eve that says, I had to do that um, to show you what you've done. And so these animal skins will be what you wear. That was where it started. Um, but without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And that's, that's written and done uh, in Hebrews there, so we can see how much greater and how much more significant Christ's fully atoning sacrifice was as we look also as, as this wraps up with starting in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Right? Not for him, he did it for us. He redeemed us to himself. Not that he should offer himself often, right? He only had to do it once doesn't have to offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have, to ha he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, again, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that kind of hits the nail on the head with the, the way the scarlet thread of redemption leads all the way to Christ and the completeness of what he did is what we rejoice in. Anyway, I thought just to tie together the historical moments that are woven together by the scarlet thread of redemption, 
that perhaps an original poem might be just right on this Sunday evening. So if you're still awake, um, let, me, uh, let me dig in on something that I, I hope goes through history and without trying to summarize the whole Bible and stand up here for a number of weeks, perhaps this, this may help a little bit. Adam and Eve were given strict instruction from their loving God who placed them in Eden. From that fruit of the tree of good and evil, you shall not be eaten. But eat the forbidden fruit, they surely did, after the serpent's cunning, crafty, and twisted interjection. Blame was passed from the man to the woman, and then to that serpent, author of such cunning deception. Attempting to erase, oh yes, they tried, their shame and their guilt. By their own effort, hand-sewn fig leaves were hastily built. If you thought that counted as payment for your sin, the Lord said, nope, sorry, Adam, it's a dud. But watch as I slay this lamb in front of you and cause it to perish by its great loss of blood. You see, I love you too much to let you enter my presence still trapped in your sin. So to show you the seriousness of what ye have done, I've clothed you both in garments of skin. Two boys were born after the man intimately knew his wife. Yes, together they indeed did lie. A tiller of soil, Cain offered fruit, but Abel understood, yes, bloodshed meant that a lamb must die. Then generations of folks conceived in sin brought murder, destruction, wickedness, and shame. But a glimpse of righteousness did bring about a replacement for the fallen Abel. Seth was his name. And in his lineage, we find our faithful Noah, a man called to service for constructing an ark. Sin would be judged right soon as God could no longer tolerate mankind, now so wicked and so dark. And soon there did burst forth fountains from the deep. Yes, covering the earth was a great worldwide flood. Safe in the ark, though, remained the dry remnant, as God showed all that sins drowned only through blood. By and by, we see that in order to establish his great plan of salvation, he says Abraham with a plan for faithfully establishing his great and mighty nation. God will provide himself the lamb. The father said to his only son while he faithfully stretched out his obedient hand. But it was his faith that was rewarded while the knife hung in the air, as the slaying was called off with merely one second to spare. I know now that you're faithful, and from me, your loving God, you did not run. Abraham, I have seen that you were willing to sacrifice your only son. Instead, hey, let's grab that ram stuck behind you in that thicket overgrown. Have Isaac stand aside while you sacrifice that animal's blood instead of your own. As the nation explodes and a people are enslaved, stubbornness and mistakes allow few to be saved. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so I will show you again what I need you to do. I'll deal with sin and hardness of heart, but to be saved from this judgment, I have instructions for you. A spotless male lamb, one year old, shall be slain on the 14th day, and please do it at twilight. Fresh blood you will take and apply it as such, the lintel above, the doorpost left, as well as the right. Then that thread of scarlet stitched Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the tabernacle all into one. And in perfect timing, the book of Leviticus showed the perfect way that we cannot reach, well, not without the sun. Two spies then changed history and helped reveal the truth within a sinner's heart. When they say, listen, Rahab, hang this, scort of scar hang this cord of scarlet from your window, please just do your part. Our glimpse inside God's sinners and their tribulations continues when Samuel appoints Saul as king. 
But that one traded his power for pride and disobedience. But then, ah, a blessed anointing. Find a man after God's own heart, Samuel. The Almighty Lord has again spoke. And the prophet anointed Jesse's son, a ruddy and handsome young bloke. Yes, the, the young shepherd was David, a warrior and a king, the psalmist, killer of lion and bear. He was chosen an ancestor to Jesus, as Scripture revealed centuries before the time was truly there. But was our David, king and warrior, a perfect, spotless, blameless man over which sin had never trod? Was he holy and righteous and oh so worthy of being in the lineage of the coming Son of God? Soon we see that this victorious warrior would make a choice to disobey and sin against the Lord of heaven. One bad choice led to another, and the consequences thereof tainted his great legacy with what, God call, with, with what God's word calls leaven. Forget it then, David, that choice has sealed your fate, our gracious Father could have said. But judgment and wrath was withheld, and we see the continual knitting of that forgiving scarlet thread. Solomon, Jehoshaphat, and then Hezekiah, kings who tried as hard as they could. King Manasseh, though, you see, pride led his heart, and many innocent lives he did take, yes again, by blood. Forgiveness, humility, and repentance, though, becomes his anthem as he is locked in chains. His prayers and his redemption are now recorded well in history, the power of forgiveness overcoming all his pains. These hints, these patterns, the records of these souls, the word of God records so well as we read it front to back. The 66 books, all now canonized as one, allow us access now to trace, to study, and to track. Finally, prophets, men like Isaiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, told us consistently of who we could expect to see. And while it would take several hundred years, the Christ child did come humbly to Bethlehem, but he really, he came for you even for me. Yes, consistent with the sacrifice that caused many a lamb on an altar their life to be taken away, the scarlet thread of redemption is the eternal and beautiful and perfect pattern which our Lord Christ himself did obey. Yes, it was he, he alone, who hung upon that cross, not a bull this time, or a goat, a sheep, or a ram, but a Savior that lived among us after leaving the glories of heaven and, of course, the great I Am. Rise again he did, three days is all it took, for him to fulfill his promise written clearly in our great holy book. The thread of scarlet is now shown clearly to us, and it's searching now for souls to forgive and capture. The tapestry of his story is hanging sweetly now in heaven, waiting only for our own last breath or that moment of glorious rapture. Yes, he will return, and he said it will not be late, but rather soon, when we're released from these confining fleshly bars. I, and I hope you as well, look forward with anticipation to see his face, his smile, and still in his precious hands, those priceless redeeming scars. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you heartily, for you did take away my sin, and the whole, not just a part. You paid a price I could not, and for that I accept you and believe today with absolutely all my heart. Anyway, as we close now, and have a time of uh, fellowship as we, as we are done here. I'll end this just with a brief scripture from Isaiah, which I hope just kind of sums it up. In Isaiah and, and, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your, sin, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We are forgiven indeed. Let's just close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you that uh, your word is truth 
and that even though we can look at verse by verse the common thread of your forgiveness and your love and ultimately heading towards the, the blood sacrifice that your own very son gave to us, we thank you for that. We thank you for showing it to us. Heavenly Father, we just uh, lift up your name here tonight. We thank you that we've had time to look in your word. We uh, ask God for, if there are any here who do not know your son and have a relationship with him, who have not asked for complete and total forgiveness that Christ offers, that I would pray they would do that. I pray that they would think about that and that you would uh, work on their heart as they uh, continue to understand what you have done for them. Lord, we just lift all this up. We thank you in the power of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.